Welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski, and with me is Michael Shore. Michael, welcome. Joe, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. How is how is everything? How are you? <laughs> you're getting you're getting personal. We never do this. isn't isn't usually isn't part of our rapport. No, usually we go in a whole different direction. We usually just you know right right to the action. Sure. But, but you know, I'm curious. I just want to be sure you're okay. I'm. I have no complaints. I've, I I literally have. I mean, ex- except for things that are outside of my control. You know, certain aspects of the of the like national political scene. Let's say, sure. except for things like that that I can't literally. That I have no anything that's like in my in my world that I that I have any dominion over or participation in actively. Like my family, they're all healthy and happy. My job is really fun. I like it a lot. All of that sort of stuff. Everything is great. How about yeah. you? How are you doing? How's, <laughs> now, that as long as we're getting personal, how are you doing? How's your family? How are your daughters? Thank you for asking that. They're doing great. Um, yeah. I like the, the phrase, no complaints, by the way. Like, yes. I, I like that. I think, to me, that's, that's as good as it gets right there. That's right. That's a, if, you have, if you have no complaints, because uh, I think the assumption with no complaints is that people will, generally speaking, complain about anything. Right. Right? <laughs> And so if you have no complaints, that means, wow, things are good. That's, a, that's the best you can be, is that you have no complaints. Yeah. You can't beat that, right? Well, first, first of all, it, it gives me the, uh, the impression, whenever somebody says it to me, I say, how are you doing? They say, no complaints. That gives me the impression, if they had complaints, they'd tell me. You know what I mean? <laughs> they'd, be, they'd be like, I would totally bog down your day with my complaints. But- sure. I don't have any. I have none, which I you know love. What, you know what's a funny phenomenon? I wonder if you've experienced this. If you uh, run into someone who's an extremely casual acquaintance, maybe it's someone you work in the same organization with but who isn't part of your department or whatever. Sure. So it's like a person you know by sight and maybe you've said a couple words to occasionally, but generally speaking, don't know that well. And you say something like, how was your weekend? And then that person proceeds to tell you in excruciating <laughs> detail how his or her weekend was. I, this is it's a very funny thing that's happened a couple times and there was once I, I was working somewhere I won't even say where because I don't want to call attention to any to, to this person at all but I, I I saw a person in the elevator that I didn't know very well and I went hey man how's it going and he went oh not good <laughs> and then and then I was like oh no and then he proceeded to tell me and I barely I didn't know this guy's last name. And then he proceeded to tell me in like very, like uh, excruciating detail how like he and his uh, and his spouse were having difficulties and under, it was a, it wasn't going things were falling apart and it was only a matter of time and he was thinking about moving out and I mean I barely I literally barely knew the guy and I, I it struck me as a very I mean it was I was very sad for him it was a sure. sad situation but I also just like the phenomenon of like when small talk becomes when people take small talk to <laughs> to mean like, oh, I'm really interested in this. Like, and when you say, how is it going? Or how, how are you doing? Or how was your weekend? And people are like, oh, I better say exactly. I better detailed answer to that question because this is re- this is a really big deal that this person wants to know, you know? Yeah, no, this, this has happened to me numerous times. Sure. And, I, and, and it is, I, I don't know how to respond to it because obviously, I mean, I don't, it's not like I don't care. I do care. I care. If I would not have asked if I didn't care. I just didn't know that I was going to get that much detail. My, you know, obviously the cliche version of that 
is the how was your vacation thing, um, right. which which just happened to me. The only reason I bring it up, it happened to me uh, just you know a week or two ago. Uh, I said somebody, how was your vacation? Um, and just, I mean, basically what, what he, he sounded like was that I was asking him because I intended to take the exact same vacation as him <laughs> at some point. Yeah. I better right? give so, you every detail. I'm going to give yeah. you every, but, and don't, when you, when you see, when you check in there, don't ask for John because John right. is the worst, you know, and so it was like that. And, and yeah, I mean, there is a point where you feel like I, I don't want to basically just become like Archie Bunker or something and just like, I don't care. Just get away from me. And yet yeah. on the other hand, yeah, I mean, I think there, there are limits to what, what you're really looking for with the, with the small talk, which, you know, suggests that much in the same way that I started this thing with small talk, they're pointless. It's kind of pointless to do that, isn't it? Well, there's, but there, small talk serves a very useful function in our society, I think. Right, it 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 forges small, almost imperceptible bonds between and among people who share any bit of common space or who exist in the same kind of general orbit, and it makes you feel like you're a little bit kind of like connected to people. Like I I I don't I, small talk's great. I love small talk. It's like a it's a tiny little moment where you are saying to another person that you don't know super well. Hey, you're on Earth, and I recognize that you're on Earth, and I'm also on Earth, and isn't this nice that we are both on Earth, and we're alive, and you can smell flowers and look at the clouds, and everything's fine. And and that's fine. The, the problem is that, the to me, the boundaries of small talk are extremely well-defined. And as soon as someone crosses one of the boundaries, you feel there's like a tension, an immediate tension in the air. And if you're a person who doesn't sense that tension then you then you have a then you have a little bit of an issue that you need to work on i would say you need to like you you need to uh be a little more perceptive about other people's time and feelings and sort of general like uh, uh you need to think about how you exist on earth and make sure that your existence on earth isn't intruding on other people's existence on earth <laughs> well well there's also i mean there's there's also the you know i some people tell me things in small talk that I wouldn't tell like my wife. That's you know what I mean? I'm Just saying. Like, yeah, yes, yeah, of I mean, course. Just, so there's so there's both the intrusion level of you know you really I really only wanted to I just wanted to know that you're fine. Right. And if you're not fine, I kind of wanted to know that, but that's sort of where it ended. Like, oh yeah, it's not going that great. But no, I'll, see, I, but but I think manage. that's I think that's it. I think there's three transgressions, right? That you okay. can make. One is you talk too long. One is someone says, "How's it going?" And then 18 minutes later, the person goes like, "And that's the story of how it's going." That's a problem. Number two is uh, if it's too intimate. If if you say, "How's it going?" and you say, "Well," I'll tell you, my daughter's never really loved me. That's really the problem in my life. My daughter doesn't love me, and she blames me for, uh, you know, for the divorce that my wife and I. Oh, but did I mention I got a divorce? Yeah, I got a divorce, and here's a, that's that's another one. Too intimate. And then the third one is is actually just um, br- like being negative because I, I I think if someone says how's it going in a in a casual, cheery, happy way, and it isn't going that well for you, I think it's a little bit on you to cover because this, you know you have people hopefully you have people in your life that you can seek out if things aren't going well but if the guy in the elevator that you barely know or the the ups uh, lady or the uh, toll booth operator 
if those those are not the people that you should be reaching out to and i know it sometimes is hard and i've had the feeling when things haven't been going well in my life of like wanting to grab anybody and hold them down and say help me i'm in trouble <laughs> but i think it's kind of up to you if the person isn't a confidant to just say like uh it's going great how about you and then go find a good friend or a, a a professional therapist or a social worker or someone and talk to them about how it's really going. I think that you're you're sort of breaching the social contract of small talk if you are if things aren't going great and you kind of grab you see an opportunity with a person that you barely know and then try to engage that person in helping you with your problems. But but, but are you not just completely taking away the responsibility of the questioner who asked how's it going in the first place. So that person doesn't really care how it's going. That's if what you... I'm saying. That person, <laughs> the person who says how's it going doesn't actually mean how are you? Tell okay. me how you are. The person who says how's it going is making a little tiny covalent bond between two humans on earth. And that's, right. all that, that's all that that's intended to do, right? So if you say you're, you're, you're breaching the contract that that person is offering to you, if you get too intimate, talk too long, or bring that or person down with your – yeah, exactly. That's my, that's my thesis. So, okay, so if it's, if it's not going well, just so we understand the, the Michael Schur uh, rules of engagement, yeah. um, if, if it's not going well, can you say you know, something very – quickly like uh, it's going or something like that is that is that or, or or do you have a responsibility to sort of be cheery because this person clearly wants a cheery response i think it, 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 this a little bit depends on how again how well you know this person if you right. run into a friend on the street oh yeah that's and the friend says hey how's it going then you can go like it's actually not going great can we actually i would love to if you had a second to talk to, to help me with my problems right but if it's a if it's the if it's a person you don't know at all it's a stranger or it's a person you barely know. I think your the burden is a little bit on you to overcome your personal issues at that moment and offer a short, terse, generally cheery response because the person has said come to you and has basically been like it's it's like a a, a caveman smile and grunt and wave and it's sort of up to you to caveman smile grunt and wave back because that's all that that's all that is happening in that moment. That's all that that relationship requires. The caveman smile and grunt. I, yeah. I, I think that's that's really what we should be doing. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> 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 All right, we are, <laughs> we wasted ten minutes on that. Can you believe that? Ten minutes we wasted on that. That is exactly what happens, though. When <laughs> I mean, if we deviate, that's the history of this podcast, though. If we deviate it, it one is, yeah. one degree, a tenth of a degree from what we said we we're going to do, then ten minutes goes by. I know it's brutal, but I can't start our draft, which I'm excited about. Draft, but I can't start our draft before asking you, uh, what did you think of that Javi Baez tag in the Dominican uh, Puerto Rico game? I just wrote about it. It's the best. Uh, it's the best baseball gif of all time. I really believe this. It's the best. It's better than than the, than the Jose Bautista fist fight at second base. It's it's better than the Jose Bautista bat flip. It's better. He, he I, a couple of the best ever. Yes, he's 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 got like three of the ten best ever. But this one, if you haven't seen it, it's Javi Baez covering second. There's a stolen base, and it's like you know what it, you know what it, it reminded me of exactly is Larry Bird in the three point contest when he launches the winning ball and bef and like as it's in the air, he turns around and raises his arm like because oh, yeah. he knows it's going in. 
Javi Baez covers second on a stolen base, and he starts pointing to the catcher, to his own catcher, to congratulate him on the throw bef- when the ball's halfway there. <laughs> it's the cr- he's a dark arts wizard. I don't understand him. And then it doesn't even look like he's looking at the ball when he catches it and slaps the tag he's off. Not. He's and not. also, but the best thing about the GIF is that the entire team is celebrating like before the tag is put on. It's this they are this team is so incredible. I love them so much. And that mo I could not believe what I was looking at. Well, I'm gonna watch it again right now. I literally couldn't believe what I was looking at when I saw it. Well it's, there, it's the best. Oh, it's the best. There's the best. There are two things about it that, that I that I wrote about. One is exactly what you're saying. He 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 starts celebrating before the ball gets to him. Uh, it's Nelson Cruz who's trying to steal the base. So he's pointing, Baez is pointing at Yadier Molina, like, <laughs> you are awesome, man. What a great like, throw, throw before, yeah. before he catches the ball. <laughs> and then he tags Cruz without looking at yes, all. Without never, even, he never, <laughs> but never even comes close to looking. No, no, he never even, it's almost as if he was doing like, yeah, you know, like with, 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 he's, Got his hand back there like, oh, I know something's going on, but I don't even care what it is because I'm so focused on congratulating you, <laughs> Yadi Molina. <laughs> it's a great – It's, it's the, I've, I can it's watch it forever. And also – okay, also the thing about the actual piece of the GIF, the actual bit of video that's looping over and over again is then after the tag, Molina thrusts his helmet up into the frame perfect like in celebratory <laughs> fashion perfectly. And who's who's the pitcher? I can't tell. Do you know? Yeah, I'm not sure who's pitching. Whoever the pitcher is, then goes like twirling and kind of dancing across the mound. <laughs> it's like the whole team is celebrating. It's like as if they have a choreographed celebration for every action that happens on a baseball diamond. Oh, it's it's, it's just wonderful. amazing. It's I, wonderful. I don't understand. Javi Baez is I, and we are so. I know this is a cliche. We are so lucky we get to watch this guy play baseball for the next, like, 15 years. Well, He's- that's the second thing. That's the second thing I wrote. The second thing I wrote was that Javi Baez is 24 years old. He's the greatest tagger in the history of baseball. And the reason is nobody knew that was a thing before <laughs> Javi Baez even came along. Everybody just thought tags were tags. You just – everybody yeah. tags. The- and this guy said, you know, tagging – is an art form. And I and I pulled out for the story. So the story should be up on MLB.com by the time this uh, is running. Um, like seven of his greatest tags. I mean, the guy has an entire, like, like collection of incredible tags. And I'm not sure that this tag in and of itself is even the best one. He's got one tag where he where he does like a jumping jack in midair and tags the guy. Uh, he's got the behind-the-back tag of, of uh, either Trevor Story or somebody like that. Um, you know, he has the, the tag where he comes flying across the screen against Francisco Lindor in the World Series. I, it's The guy is a marvel at this thing that, you know, I said it's basically like somebody turning... Uh, walking on and off a, a moving sidewalk in the airport into an art form. Like somehow, yeah. like turning something that you just are like, yeah, that takes like some skill, I guess. But the limitations are very, very low. And he's taken them to the sky. It's, oh, it's incredible. I just don't understand. Uh, it's like, you know what it's like? Um, 
it's a little bit like uh, I don't know who the right person is. It's not. I was going to say it's like Magic Johnson passing, right. but I think it's actually more like Ricky Rubio passing or something. <laughs> you know how like there's like there's like these guys who aren't necessarily like Javier Baez isn't uh, Giancarlo Stanton. He's not Mike Trout. He's not no. like the best player. No. But at this thing, he's the best. And it's a little bit like when you see, like I'll very frequently uh, see like gifs of Ricky Rubio passing, making an insane pass that you didn't know was possible. Like a weird running, jumping, leaping, wrap around, like, you know, like throwing the ball like a discus or something, you know, some weird thing between someone's legs. It's like that. It's like Javi Baez making this play, making tags at second is like, He's the best at this thing that's part of the game. It's not like we didn't know that this was part of the game. Right, right. But then when he does it, it looks like he's doing something different from everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what it reminded me of a little bit, and it, partly because I was going back and forth uh, last night. Uh, at the same time, uh, Novak Djokovic was playing Juan Martin Del Potro, and uh, those two guys played the greatest tur- the greatest match I've ever seen live, and that was in Rio last year, and even though Del Potro won in straight sets, uh, it's the greatest thing I've ever seen. I've never seen two players go at it like that, and I've never seen a player hit the ball as hard as Del Potro does. And it reminded me a little bit, I think it's different in the sense of, even it's even different from like a Rubio pass, because there have been great passers before. There's just never been a great tagger before. Right. 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 But it reminded me a little bit, like every so often, Del Potro, like, you know, he has a great forehand and and a mediocre backhand because of his wrist. He can't hit the the two-handed backhand anymore, so so he slices his backhand most of the time. But he has a great forehand. And every so often in the middle of a point, he'll hit this forehand that you're like, well, what is that? Like, I've never seen – he'll hit it so hard and at, like, such an angle and with such lack of spin – that it will just like whoa! It just suddenly it's just off the screen, and and you just go, well, that doesn't look like anything like tennis. You know, that's that's like something completely different. As great as as all the great forehands, as great as Federer's forehand is, as great as as uh, Nadal's forehand is, as great as the Djokovic's, his forehand is fundamentally different in in this way that every so often he hits one so hard you just go that's not even the same shot yeah and that's what that's what bias is that's what bias turns every tag into something you're like i know that everybody else also does that but it doesn't look anything like what you do somehow <laughs> so fun so fun all right so fun Let's get to the draft here because it's a it's a very exciting draft. It's the first draft we've ever done where we're focusing an entirely, I believe, the first draft that we've ever done. We're focusing an entirely on one person. Um, the draft this week uh, is um, next job for Theo Epstein. So the, the, so that's the, right. The, the, that's it. That's the whole story. Uh, I just did a big piece on Theo Epstein that you also can find over at MLB.com. Uh, obviously, Theo Epstein is already taking the Boston Red Sox to the World Series, which is enough to, for any man, any human. That is enough. Taking the Boston Red Sox to their World Series championship after eighty plus years is that's you. You're set for life. Your your legacy is done. He was thirty, by the way, when he did he that. Was he was thirty, 30 years, years old when he did it, and he was done. It was like that's it. You're you're you. you it's not only you never have to buy a drink in Boston. They're going to make statues to you. You're done. You, you're you're set. 
And then he's like, no, that's not good enough. And he went to Chicago and and took the Cubs, which is, I think, even more impossible, to the World Series and winning a championship. Um, and so clearly this – and he's still only 40. He's still younger, as I put it in the piece. He's still younger than Bartolo Colon. Right. So uh, at this point, he has to go to a next step. What is that next job? That is our draft. Also, it should be noted, this is one of the rare drafts where usually we're in you know intense competition with each other. We're, we're trying to win. We're two different franchises drafting things. I think of this draft as you and I are just trying to find a, uh, the right next move for Theo Epstein. <laughs> that's, it's collaborative. I see this one as being yeah. very collaborative. No idea is a bad idea. That's right. Yeah, yeah we're, just, we're throwing things out there. We have, a, we have in our midst a 40-year-old man who won a World Series with the Red Sox when he was 30, won it again three years later, then was like, this isn't good enough. I'm going to go to the most moribund franchise in, the, in all of sports, really. You would probably say at that point in all of sports, the long 108-year-old drought or whatever, 103-year-old drought when he went there. And uh, five years later, ahead of schedule, not only got to the World Series, but won the World Series. So now it's like, all right, well, this is a special person. There's a lot of problems in the world. What do, what do we do now? How do we, do how, we, do we, how do we get this guy to fix a... A problem, and he. So, who has the first pick? Do I have the first pick, or you have the first pick? You have the first. pick. I have the first pick. Okay, so uh, the first pick is very obvious. He should be president of the United States of America. Now, no question. Uh, this is not a, uh, a a political statement. I'm not forget forget about the very um, uh, uh, tricky political situation we're in now in terms of the federal branch of the U.S. government. I just mean in general. Theo Epstein should be president. He has a couple things going for him. He's young and handsome. He's basically JFK without the uh, miserable scandals and without his dad buying an election for him using <laughs> using corrupt union labor and the mafia. I assume that wouldn't happen. Uh, but he has a lot of presidential qualities already. He was educated at Yale. He has uh, achieved great things in the in the private sector. He uh, he is a, uh, a telegenic guy. I think he's a very handsome gentleman. Sure. Um, and uh, he has he's basically he has the pedigree on paper of a president. So it's like he he's actually an electable candidate. I don't even know what uh, party he would run under. It doesn't matter. He need, we need this guy in charge. He's very calming. He's a very calming presence. He would be. He would look great behind the Oval Office, just telling us like, "Look, here's the deal. Here are the problems. Here's what we need to fix." I think this is a this is a no brainer. I think that any either political party would be lucky to have him be the candidate for president. That's my number one pick, President of the United States of America. Yeah, and it's it's the only number one pick. It's really sort of the basis of this whole draft. Um, I think the thing is, I think your point is right. I don't know Theo Epstein's politics, and I don't care. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It, it, it yeah. does not matter. Uh, whatever would be good for the country, he would do. Like, that's that's you could feel good about that because that's exactly what he's done his entire baseball career. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that there's also the, the you know, you, you talk about him being a very uh, good-looking guy. He's very, very well-spoken. I mean, he would give some big time speeches. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, there's just no question. And I mean, obviously you look back at, at presidents in, in history and that's a big part. That's a big part of the job. I mean, forget the, the legislation and, and, you know, obviously some of the other things that, 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 that people did kind of what we remember are the things they say. I mean, the, the Kennedy, you know, inauguration speech is the thing we remember, you know, and as, as, 
incredible as Lincoln's career is, in, in some ways it is all encapsulated in the Gettysburg Address. So I think, you know, he is, my point in my MLB piece is that this guy is kind of an artist. I mean, everybody sort of looks at him as as this statistical, analytical, moneyball guy, and he is those things. I mean, he is definitely very analytical and very smart. Um but this guy's grandfather wrote Casablanca. His father is a novelist. His sister's a screenwriter. He's, it's in his blood, you know? And I think that's a really big part of being president. Um, I, I vote for him today. I mean, that's it. He's old enough. So I'd yeah. say, I say Theo Epstein for president. No other job that we're going to come up with is, to me, as fitting as that one. But uh, but we have to keep going. We have nine more. So, um I'm going to go completely the opposite way and go much smaller uh, than president, even though some of my other jobs are very big. Uh, but I'm going to go much smaller. I'm going to just basically say what is obvious. Uh, he should be running the Cleveland Browns. I, I think that the Browns not being ever having gone to the Super Bowl is a very, very sad thing. I mean, it's sad for Detroit also that the Lions have never been there. And, and I feel for, for Detroit fans, but I'm from Cleveland, so I don't care that much. Um, the Browns are a great historic franchise. Cleveland's a great American city. Uh, obviously, it's gone through a tremendous uh, you know, amount of, of grief through the years. Uh, last year, LeBron James you know, finally broke the sports thing. But that city has always been a Cleveland Browns city, or ever since Paul Brown you know, created that team. It's a football city. They've been... A disaster that has been well covered. We've talked about it. They've had that city. The team has moved. They came back. They've been absolutely horrendous. In some ways, they've tried to get like a Theo Epstein-like character when they hired Paul D. Batesta, uh, but it's not the real thing. To me, you the next step, if you're going to make a sports step, go to Cleveland and save the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, it's the right choice, uh, number one. It's the right sports choice. I mean, obviously, at some point, he has to leave baseball because he's done it already. Right. Like, he's going to go to Seattle and win a series for the Mariners, and he's going to go to the San Diego and win a series for the Padres, and then he's going to go to Texas and win a series for the Rangers, and then he'll be 43 by that point. That's all going to happen in the next three years. And then uh, he'll have to leave somewhere. And I, I was going to say, like, you know, the only other thing you could imagine would be going to, like, the, uh, uh, the EPL and taking over a more abundant EPL franchise, but... You know, Lester won the EPL last year. Like they, yeah. they that that I, I mean, I'm sure there's another there's another he could go to West Bromwich Albion or something, right? right. But that doesn't have the same that doesn't have the same. Um, it it probably has a a similar challenge and similar level of difficulty, but it doesn't resonate as much at least here. And so I feel like that is the that is the move. If you if you're going to stay in sports. And get out of baseball. The only logical I, r thing to do is go to the Browns. That's the yeah, only I, thing. Yeah, it's the, I uh, think that's right. more than the Lions. More than you know, uh, he could go to you know run the Seventy Sixers or something. Eh, it's not the same. Browns. Yeah, the answer is the Browns. Toronto Maple Leafs was one I thought about. Sure, um, yeah, yeah. You know, and obviously that uh, hockey you know means so much in Toronto, and obviously it's been a disaster. But you know, I mean, we have American problems. I mean, uh, the Canada. It's kind of great already. I mean, yeah. you know, so, so I, you know, generally I'm keeping them here in America. Um, for my, so in your piece, uh, there's an interesting quote where um, 
uh, he, he's talking about um, the the part of the part of the job of, of winning the series where people would come up to him and thank him and stuff. And here's what he says: He says it was the best part of the experience in Boston too, the most meaningful, the part that resonates the most. We're not working in healthcare, we're not working in education, we're not saving lives here. To get to play a small part in something that is actually transformative for people and really does impact their lives, that's such a privilege. So my for no, my number two uh, job for Theo Epstein, it's he should work in healthcare and education. <laughs> <laughs> he should save lives, and I, so I'm I'm creating a new position called uh, Czar of Healthcare and Education. I'm literally just lumping the incredibly complex issue of healthcare in with the incredibly complex issue of education and saying he should oversee both. Like, and it's a new department. It's called the Department of Healthcare and Education. If you want to throw in um, international treaties in there too, sure, whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> he should work. He should be the head of healthcare and education because healthcare right now, uh, quite hilariously, uh, our president Donald J. Trump recently said uh, nobody knew that healthcare could be so complicated. <laughs> which is, I don't know if it ranks in the top ten of my favorite of his quotes, but it's 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 definitely. I think it is. I think it's top ten. Nobody knew. That healthcare could be so complicated. So uh, the, it is complicated. It's very complicated, as is education, federal education standards, state education. There's a big. There's lots of big battles. We need Theo Epstein to untangle it all, and I'll tell you why. He. Uh, it, it, this is also in your piece. There's a very famous moment where he was JD Drew got a lot of uh, a lot of crap when he played for the Red Sox because he didn't quite live up to what the average Red Sox fans' expectations of him maybe were. He didn't hit sure. 30 home runs and drive in 120 or whatever. And he was on the radio on a local Boston radio station. They were talking about JD Drew and saying JD Drew didn't uh, didn't have enough RBIs. And Theo Epstein went on incredibly calm rant it was like the calmest <laughs> the rant, calmest rant. so absolutely. calm but he absolutely just tore them into tiny pieces and uh and it was so and it taught, but because they their priorities were so out of whack and it, he the the command of fact and nuance that he had at his fingertips was so impressive and then also the his ability to deliver that information in an incredibly calm and straightforward way. That's what we need with both healthcare and education. So I'm saying job number two, if he can't be president, would be, uh, let's uh, let's call it Secretary of Healthcare and Education. <laughs> now, now I, you realize that, that uh, the commissioner is going to come down on you can't combine those two, right? They're two different things. I mean, it's, uh, it seems like combining at the commission. I'm just saying, for me, it's fine. But I'm just saying that, if you get a, a little letter from Roger Goodell, I'll pay this fine. I don't, don't care. Don't you surprised. know what? This is one of those deals. It's a, it's a technical foul worth taking in the NBA. You know what I mean? Like I'll, I'm, I'll take that. I'll pay. I'll happily pay this fine in order to fire up my team. In this case, my team is Theo Epstein. And and the way I fire him up is I get him to be the Secretary of Healthcare and Education. Yeah, I, I, I have fixed healthcare. Literally, that's my next thing right there. It just says fix healthcare. That's all I said. I, you know, I, the thing that strikes me about healthcare. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, how complicated, obviously, it is, um, is that it, it feels like that there is like sort of a three basic prongs of healthcare, the way people feel about healthcare. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants it for themselves and they want the best healthcare. Again, obviously, if you're healthy, uh, maybe you don't care and you're like, well, I'm not, I'm never going to get sick. But generally speaking, uh, everybody wants good health care. Some people feel like that they want good health care and they want everybody to have good health care. Some people feel like, no, I think we all should sort of get our own health care. That seems to be the basic disagreements, right? You know, 
And it feels to me like that challenge, as complicated and, and difficult it is, is absolutely no harder than turning the Cubs around. That's my feeling. My feeling is turning the Cubs around when they had no talent whatsoever. I mean, they had one player on that team that was even worth anything. Turning that team around in five years, I think healthcare is easy. You know, so I think just knock out healthcare and then maybe yeah. go to education, but just knock it out, right? I mean, I think he'll, I think he could probably handle healthcare in like six weeks and then he can move <laughs> on to education. That's why I'm suggesting that we just combine them because I think healthcare, he'll get in there and be like, wait, what's that? Okay, I got it. Okay, yeah, move this over here, do this, and then we do this. And then I, he explains it to everybody and everybody goes, all right, all right that, seems, that seems right. And then, we, yeah, we're done. In six weeks, we're done. Everybody has healthcare, it's cheap. All the insurance companies are in, Everyone, <laughs> everyone's happy. Yeah, I, so I'm, I'm I'm saying that like six to eight weeks, healthcare is done, and education is going to take a little longer. Right. So he'll have, he'll move over there after two months. I can see that. I can see that. All right, my second uh, pick for for what the OFC should do now is uh, is be in charge of of the NASA mission and get a man on Mars. Ah. Um, I have a friend who really, really, really doesn't like NASA and never has. Just feels like that is a complete waste of money. The, the amount of time of sp- space exploration. He really doesn't like it. He thinks going to the moon was a waste of time. Uh, he just feels like, what do we care? It's like it's a lot of money spent on space, and who cares about space? And I argue with him uh, because I believe that in addition to all of the incredible things that we learn along these lines, there's also like that's something that connects us as people, right? It's like... That's why everybody remembers where they were when the when the moon. I mean, I don't remember. I was too young, but that's why everybody remembers where they were because it was like a moment. I mean, that the the, the great Neil Armstrong line about one small step for man. Uh, I think is real. I believe that. I believe that we, as a as a species, kind of want something larger than ourselves to sort of shoot for, and that's huge, huge part of the Theo Epstein philosophy. He'll say that. Five times in any interview is this idea of being part of something bigger than ourselves. Well, nothing's bigger than going to Mars. Like that to me is like the biggest sort of world plan you can have. And there's no question in my mind he he could get that done. I think that takes longer than six weeks. Um, but I think going to Mars, all the complications involved, all of the the you know necessary motivation type things, right in his wheelhouse. Yeah, I like it. I mean, uh, the only thing I'll say is that I feel like Elon Musk is already kind of on that a little bit. <laughs> and I feel like it might be overkill to put Elon Musk and Theo Epstein on the same. Uh, I feel like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I, do you need Theo when you have Elon Musk? I mean, Elon Musk is a lunatic. Right. And, he's, and he is a sort of a wild, he's more of a wild card, I would say. But also, I, I, I get it. I get the sort of like, you know, pride that comes with landing a man on Mars and stuff. But I, I, I feel like Elon has a head start on Theo, you know, but Elon, I mean, Elon Musk is. And I say this with great respect for the incredible things that he has done uh, and his incredible work with power and batteries and all the other thing. He's kind of nuts. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, he's, just a, he's really, an insane person. Yeah. yeah. So so I'm not saying that, that a nut can't get this done. But that's sort of, you know, I mean, that's that's sports people try that too sometimes. You know, it's like, oh, let's hire Billy Martin. That it just feels to me like this this mission seems big enough and 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 important enough to to the world. 
yeah, let's put our best. And I think we all could agree Theo Epstein is our best. I'm going to, for my third pick, I'm going, uh, we got to solve climate change. (laughs) This is the guy. Um, you hear if you read about climate change, it's very interesting because you you'll read statistics, and no one obviously really a hundred percent knows stuff like this. Right. But you'll read things that say like you know if everybody in the world painted the roof of his or her house white instead of black, we could like the global warming would stop because the amount of light that's absorbed by the black tar roofs of houses heats up the earth considerably and if it were white it would reflect a lot of that sunlight back up into the sky and scatter it in the atmosphere and then you know the earth wouldn't be so hot or if you painted all the roads white or if you um if you everybody uh, drove an electric car for a year or if everyone switched their light bulbs to led light bulbs or whatever and you read you know that would save this many massive tons of carbon dioxide from being released into the atmosphere blah 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 the the fact is that like I, I read those things and, and they sound interesting and, and I uh, and I pay attention to them and I think, ooh, if only we could do that. But I feel like if you put Theo in charge of it, he would actually tell you the answer. He would be like, Oh no, you that won't work and here's why or like, you know, we've run the numbers and like, you know, painting roofs is fine, but it would only do this, we'd only do reduce it by X and we need to reduce it by Y. He would just look at the whole situation. And then he would say, here's what we should actually do. Here's the practical thing we can actually do. And then so let's do it. And everyone would go, well, you're Theo Epstein. You're not. You're right. I trust you. (laughs) So (laughs) the thing is, like, if he said everyone needs to just wear, uh, go a week without washing their socks or whatever, then we would all do it. And then it would stop. It would stop climate change. You know, I I I feel like that. I feel like he, uh, he he'll be able to sift through the theoretical analyses and the data and get to like okay here's the actual way that we should attack this and i'm saying like well, six think- weeks after you know he solves healthcare in six weeks he moves on to education that's going to take a little longer probably three months i think then he moves over to climate change and by calendar year 2018 i think we're good with climate change well the thing i like about making theo epstein in charge of climate change is obviously one of the big issues we have is people strongly strongly disagree about what causes climate change and I think Theo Epstein wouldn't care about that. He would not. He would say, "Well, it doesn't matter. This fixes it." Like he would. He would never. He would never. He, what Theo always thinks about is good process. So he wouldn't let the process get bogged down by petty disputes or scientific disagreements or or political infighting. He would say, "Okay, look, you know." It, it, Let's get this squared away. And I think you're right. I think everybody would kind of go, well, wait a minute. It's Theo Epstein. So let's let's get this fixed. Right. So I'm totally for that. That's a that's an excellent choice. Uh, I'm going to go with a personal one with my third pick. Um, I want Theo Epstein to come in and fix journalism in America. I just feel like he – to me, that's a two-week deal. Just get it done. And by fixing journalism, I don't mean – uh, the fixing bad journalism uh, because I, there's, there's always been bad journalism and there's always been great journalism and I think there's as much great journalism now as there's ever been. Um, the problem is that journalism at this moment in time is at a very, very tender weak spot because people don't know how to make money on it. And, and there used to be – it used to be very, very easy because journalism was packaged together. Everybody – newspapers made money – hand over fist because everything was packaged together. So everything you needed was in your newspaper. So you weren't ever paying 
uh, the the money that, that that kept journalism and great journalism going was never the you know the, the the dime or fifteen cents or quarter or whatever it was that you were paying for the paper and had nothing to do with it. I mean that was a tiny tiny amount of money. The money that was paying for it was all the ads for garage sales, all of the movie ads, all of the car ads, all of the house ads, um, you know, all of these things that later became eBay and Fandango and all of these other multi-billion dollar conglomerates, um, all of these things used to just be wrapped up in your newspaper. Now those things are gone and newspapers are really struggling because advertising is not enough to, to cover it, just regular advertising. Plus people advertise less in print. Um, so I think Theo Epstein gets this done quick. I don't, I don't think that this is even a big issue for him. I think all the, cause it's a business question of how you get it done. And then it's a question of, of, okay, well, how do we, how do we keep good journalism? Um, how do we regain people's trust in journalism? Obviously that's a very big issue right now. Um, how do we, how do we sort out so that, that the, the fake journalism, the bad journalism, the, all this other stuff, uh, is, is sifted away and everybody understands what that is and what real journalism and great journalism is. Um, two weeks, I think two weeks he gets that done. Yeah. I had newspaper businesses number is my next pick. It's yeah. a good, it's a good pick because it, because it does seem like. I mean, this is like uh, he could do this in his spare time, right? He could like he could have <laughs> right. another job. He could be secretary like of healthcare and education, and then like you know, every night he kind of looks over. He goes, "Hey, what about?" And then uh, within like two weeks, uh, newspaper business is fixed. Um, all right, for my fourth pick, uh, I, I there's a couple other industries I think he could uh, uh, he can and should get involved in, but I, I'm going to go. I'm going to say I'm going to stay in the world of politics and say he should be the U.S. ambassador. Now, I don't mean the U.S. ambassador to China or to Russia or to uh, Kenya or to Bolivia. I mean the U.S. ambassador. I mean there's one, and it's him. And when we have a problem with any other country, anything at all, that's the guy we send. Here's why I think this is a good idea. Number one, continuity, right? It's like we have a – basically I'm saying he's not the secretary of state. That's not his job. Did the, you know that that's someone else's job? His job is the ambassador. His job is there's a little problem. Somebody got arrested somewhere, and there's a little bit of a thing, and it might blow up into a bigger thing, and whatever. You send Theo Epstein. He and I believe that if you told him right now that he uh, needed to learn Spanish, French, Russian, <laughs> Mandarin, uh, Japanese, uh, Korean, Thai, and uh, and Afrikaans. He could probably knock that out in a couple weeks. <laughs> he could probably yeah, like so. he'd probably get up to be at least conversational. He could be speaking conversational Afrikaans in like uh, two weeks, and then we just ha- we just know that whatever the whatever the little problem is, you know the big the big stuff. Obviously, you need the president, you need the secretary of state, you need these larger figures. But for all of these like medium sized or smaller problems, to know that you can send this guy and he'll just he'll handle it appropriately. That's really why. I think this is a good idea. It's because you know that, like, whatever it is, he'll figure out the best course of action. He'll make the calculations necessary. He'll get to, like, the best solution for everybody, and it'll be taken care of. And things won't escalate. It won't – he won't – he's not going to piss anybody off. He's not going to, like, make every anybody, like, you know, lose their minds. He's just going to handle it. It'll get handled. It'll get fit. It'll get done. And so I, I, we're creating another new position for him. It's just ambassador. Ambassador. He's just yeah. the U.S. ambassador. Right. Um, what that fits in with my fourth pick is 
because uh, my fourth pick is, and, and again, it's a new position. Uh, I realize it could be challenging for somebody else. Uh, he's the czar of curing things. Whatever needs <laughs> to be cured, you go to the OFC and then the OFC figures out how to get it cured. How to obviously, cure it, yeah. right? Obviously, cancer goes right to the top, right? I mean, that's where it begins. Sure. Uh, but look, he's still got things to do after he has cured cancer. So after, and by the way, he wouldn't do it. It's not, I mean, I'm not, we're, you know, we're not saying that Theo Epstein is going to go to medical school and figure out how to cure cancer. That would take too long. He will work on, uh, you know, organizing. That's his skill. His skill is organizing people and motivating people and, and, and getting things done and clarity and vision and all of those things that to me, and and by the way, I'm in no way the people who have been, you know, the the people at the at the American Cancer Society and all these other uh, cancer institutions are doing massive, incredible work. I love reading about uh, the the things, the the progress that's been made over the last few years is incredible. Um, I just think Theo Epstein gets it done quicker because he's Theo Epstein and then moves on to whatever else. And, you know, and he would have to prioritize. Obviously, you can't cure everything at once. But but I think you you know that's the guy you want. Uh, so czar of curing is what uh, I would I would name him. I think that's great. I think that's wonderful. I, I uh, all for it. Any by the way, well, these are eight great ideas we've had so far. <laughs> what, um, what do you think Theo is going to be thinking about as he as he hears? About I know exactly this? what he's going to be thinking about. Well, the, the number one thing is like, will you guys shut up? <laughs> Don't <laughs> you're putting way too much pressure on me, like even in a jokey way. Uh, that's the only thing he's going to be thinking that's if he ever thing. finds out about this. Um, uh, look, here's the deal, man. He's been the president of the United States at this point. He was the secretary of health care and education. He, he fixed climate change. He's the official U.S. ambassador for everything. He's fixed the Browns. He sent a man to Mars. He's fixed the journalism industry, and he's cured cancer. So at this point, I think it's all gravy. I, so I'm going uh, with a completely frivolous thing, uh, but something that's weighing on me a little bit, which is that they recently announced, Warner Brothers announced that they're rebooting the Matrix. And... <laughs> Uh, the Matrix, the original Matrix was wonderful, a, a transformative science fiction film. Incredible. The two the two sequels that came after it were hot, wet mounds oh, the, the, of steaming so, garbage. So bad. So <laughs> yeah. bad. And, and I'm, yeah. I'm going to interrupt for a second because uh, I, my oldest daughter, Elizabeth, um, I, I showed – we watched The Matrix together. And uh, she was as blown away as anybody who's ever seen it, right? As, as blown away as I was, as you were. Just, it, it blew her mind. She loved it. And she's like, oh my God, there are two more. And I'm like, there really no, there aren't. aren't. No, there, there really aren't. aren't two more. Nope. And she's like, no, no, there are two more. I have to see them. And even though I told her, let's not watch those, even though she fully was understood, she watched them anyway because we watched them together. And she's never forgiven me for showing those last two. They're yeah. so... Ugh, what happened? Well, so this is the problem, right? Is the original idea, the original execution was so wonderful and groundbreaking. And even though it was, uh, you know, it's now 18 years ago, these movies came out, eight in uh, April of 99, I think. Um, the same year that Phantom Menace came out, and it's totally stole Phantom Menace's thunder. And uh, they're rebooting it now, apparently. And I'm very worried, very worried about this. <laughs> <laughs> And so the point is, is that he should be in charge of the Matrix reboot, yeah. right? Yeah. It's uh, because he, he'll he's he's definitely smart enough to and understands the sort of mythology and the and the the kind of history of the the milieu in which they're working. Uh, and the, there's a certain there's a certain there's certain religious aspects to it. There's certain science fiction aspects to it. I'm sh quite sure he's 
uh, if not familiar with them, it will be able to get up to speed pretty quickly. And it just, I, I need it to be good if they actually do it. And I, I think the only way I can really guarantee that it's good is if Theo's in charge. Yeah, you know, I actually had um, take over the Star Wars, um, the, you know, the whole package. Just not because I'm not worried about Star Wars, though. Matrix is better, really, for him to be in charge because Star Wars seems to be in good hands uh, after that, you know, whatever that prequel thing was. Um, it, it now seems to be back in good hands. Everybody seems to to sort of have the ship going in the right direction. So, right. yeah, I'd say Matrix. I'd say Matrix, you know, and, and, and I think it's important for him to, to, to have a little fun, uh, which is why I'm going to make my fifth pick, my fifth pick of what Theo's next job should be. And I, I, I admit this is a little bit greedy on my part. Uh, but, but but be our best friend is basically my fifth oh, pick. Oh, what a great idea. Yeah, I think he should, you know, because look, he's done all these other things and he should just he should just take some time uh, for himself and for us and just be our best friend. That's all. That's a great idea. I had to do a wonderful idea. I met him uh, I met him once at the uh, um, in the winter of 2003 uh, at the um Peter Gammons has a hot stove, cool music, sort of little music sure. festival thing in the off season and usually in December. And I, uh, I met him, uh, and so this is it? before they won the world series before they won the world series. Yes. They had just hired, um, they had just hired Tito and he was there and I shook, got to shake his hand and say, good luck. And that was exciting. And, you know, Epstein was whatever, 29 or something. Sure. And they had just gotten Schilling and Falk, and it was like the whole, the, it was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like the, the tension in the air was massive. <laughs> and uh, it was a wonderful um, experience to watch him at 29, like basically be the dad to all the players. Like the players were, are, were ridiculous, and they were like, just like, goofing off and like you know and this is like a you know bands are going up on stage and playing and epstein was basically like all right i gotta i gotta keep these guys uh on on under control and on target and so they it was like if it was you know bronson arroyo's turn to go play something arroyo would just be like having a drink and like talking to somebody and he would walk over and go bronson you're happy you have to go on stage man and then he would go oh yeah and he would and i was like oh god this guy is just so organized (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) and i was like this you could just tell the team is in good hands this also led to my favorite red sox moment personal red sox moment which was arroyo came up to this is completely irrelevant by the way this is this will be my one meaningless thing ready (laughs) let's just transition right into this it's one last meaningless thing Sports and we draft things we know, like how beaches are terrible places to go. No hot fruit for Michael or Diet Coke for Joe. The podcast won't. It's one last one. My one last meeting thing is an anecdote, which is Bronson Arroyo is playing uh is gonna play a song at hot stove cool music winter 2003 and i'm talking to kevin millar and uh, he comes over to millar and goes hey man do you want to sing a song with me and millar goes yeah man and bronson royal goes what do you want to sing and he goes i don't know what do you want to sing and royal goes oh how about black by pearl jam and he goes great <laughs> so i i so then me and a couple other people are talking to millar they go up on stage they say we have a very special treat for you bronson arroyo and kevin millar crowd goes crazy 
Uh, oh, Bros and Royal Gimbal are singing Black by Pearl Jam. So, Royal goes up on stage, crowd goes crazy. Malar starts walking up the stairs, turns around, looks at me, and goes, I don't know one goddamn word to this song. <laughs> <laughs> then, walks on stage, the crowd goes crazy again, thrusts his arms in the air in a, like a victory. Like, he's so confident, this guy. Even, he's just told me he does not know a single word to the song. And they proceed, and then Arroyo proceeds to play the song, and Millar just kind of like grooves and like dances next to him, and like just doesn't do any, just moves around like on stage. It was truly wonderful. <laughs> that should have told you right then and there they were going to win the World Series. I'm telling you, all of the stuff about the idiots and the and the you know the loose, and they didn't care about anything. Like you, you like I saw it firsthand. Like he did not care. the The concept of the idea that pressure was a thing that Kevin Millar had to deal with was <laughs> was disproved right at that moment. I'm, I love that that the that the song was black by by Pearl Jam because it it is one of my favorite. Uh, it's, it's a great song, but it's one of my favorite um, things that I've ever read. Is there was a I think it was in Rolling Stone. I can't remember specifically where it was. Um, but it was uh, a story about um, why am I losing his name? The lead singer, uh, uh, Eddie Vedder. Eddie Vedder, and yeah. Eddie Vedder was talking about how uh, he was. You know, this was right in the middle of when they were. You know, when he was, they had just launched basically, and he was telling the story about how he was walking through a park, maybe, and he overheard somebody singing "Black," singing along to "Black," like that song, and. He like went nuts and like went out and said, "Stop doing that!" Like told the guy to stop sing because the song is so personal to him. He told somebody to stop singing that that song, and I just I remember at the time thinking that was so weird because that whole album, like like what could be more personal than like Alive? Like Alive is like literally, especially when you know what the meaning of it is, it's like the most personal song. So why was it? Because you listen to Black, the words of Black, they don't sound. That personal, and yet that set him off to the point that he literally accosted a stranger to tell him <laughs> not to sing along. So, very weird. All right, well, my one last meaningless thing to end this meaningless thing is, you know, I always thought that one of the great inventions of the last whatever, however long, is those the, the fact that you can now pay, and now, I mean, probably for the last 15, 20 years, you could pay for gas at the pump. Like, instead of having to go in sure. to the gas station, you could just put your credit card in, boom, and you're done. That has become such an arduous task now because they have, like, 7,000 questions when you – like, you get in and they're like, uh, are you uh, – do you have a rewards card? Are, what is, is this a debit or credit card? What is your social security number? What is your, your, uh, your zip code? Do you want a car wash? Do you – do you know that we have 10% off? Who, who's your favorite Beatle? I mean, it's like constantly asking, like, I was there the other day and there were like 15 questions of some sort or, or other that I had to do before. And I'm like, I, I'd almost rather now go back in and just pay the guy inside because I'm he's not going to ask me 15 questions. So I don't know if this is sort of a reversal. It, to me, it's they've ruined one of the great, inventions of our time um but i almost so wonder if this is like sort of secretly trying to get us to start connecting again as human beings well i, I will say i know what you mean um but also i would say that my the, the part of it i don't mind is the um 
that the you know enter your zip code or whatever because i've had my my like credit card or debit card has been compromised like eight times in the last <laughs> 15 years and it's always really? it's always gas stations yeah like yeah, that's, the, that's true they pray at gas stations and so the more like safe that they can be there the better off i think we all are because it's always like there's always gas cards uh being you know they they steal a number and immediately make gas card like you know cards where they whatever gas debit cards because they can use those um without having to you know go through all the security stuff and whatever so they, they it's a it's a place where people prey on your payment uh information and I, so i want it to be safe but i i'm with you i don't i'm like i don't need to be getting my extra ralph club rewards card whatever <laughs> like i i just just i the transaction is pretty simple i pay you money you give me gas <laughs> yeah, and I don't want a car wash. I don't. I really yeah. don't. Just stop asking me. If I want a car wash, I'll go to the car wash, right? I mean, yeah. you can do that there. So stop asking me that. And then don't tell me about what's available inside. The only reason I'm paying at the pump is I'm not going inside. So I don't want to know that it's like right. 30% off of chips or whatever. I don't care. But, <laughs> you know, but I mean, this is, to me, this is, you know, maybe we should put Theo Epstein in, in charge of this. I love this. Yes. Just fix that problem. Great idea. Have him take care of uh, take care of the this plague of too many questions at the gas pump thing. (laughs) And and that's an hour. That's like one afternoon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was lunch break. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that we could honestly say you've you've spoken to Theo Epstein once. Uh, and, and it was a great experience, uh, which is good because you're never, he's never talking to you again after this. And I actually need to talk to him for my job. He's never talking to me again after this either. So I think that this was well worth it. I think so. I mean, uh, despite the fact that he's never going to talk to us again, I think we can consider him our, his, our best friend because of <laughs> the, the, you drafted it in the fifth round. So legally, he's our best friend. <laughs> He is their best friend. By the way, did you ever hear from the commissioner on the, uh, on the on your effort to try to double up on Theo? Yes, I've been suspended for 12 games and fined <laughs> $2.1 million. And my first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh round picks for the next eight years have all been forfeited. That sounds reasonable. It's about me. right. Well, I'm, way, a multiple, I... I'm a multiple offender, so you know it gets, <laughs> it gets worse every time. How close were you to picking him as commissioner of the NFL, by the way, Theo? Uh, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. That's a terrible job. <laughs> but he'd make it a good job. No, no he wouldn't. No, I, he, I, he, would, he would never take that job. He would look at that job and go like, oh, this is a losing proposition. It's captain of the Titanic after it's hit the iceberg. So basically we're saying he cures cancer and saying he saves the country, but the NFL is gone. Way too hard. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's reasonable. I think that's reasonable. Well, as always... Thank you. Thanks for having me.